You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're listening to MLB.com Extras, brought to you by MLB.tv. It's baseball everywhere. Welcome to MLB.com Extras, Mariners edition. MLB.com's Mark Feinsand chats with Mariners Executive Vice President and General Manager Jerry DePoto about his path to Seattle, Mike Trout's contract, how the Mariners can catch the Seahawks, and why more players haven't gone the front office route. Here's Mark. So, Jerry, you played for the Indians, the Mets, and the Rockies from 1993 to 2000. How hard was it to hang up the uniform? Uh, terribly hard. We had, uh, I, like with most players, you always you know when it's your time to walk away. And for me, fortunately, injury made it almost impossible for me to, to come back and play again. And my saving grace was that I was with an organization for the previous four years, and I had developed relationships with many people in that organization, including Dan O'Dowd, over the course of a baseball life. And I, and I almost immediately transitioned into a, a front office support position and, and carved out a career that I think I'm a little better at than the former. <laughs> Did you know as a player that you wanted to pursue a front office career when your playing days were over? I didn't know that. You know, when I was uh, my final full season as a player where I was on the disabled list for a good deal of time, I worked in the front office with the Rockies as as a an observer. And you know, they, they allowed me to sit in on the draft. I reviewed film and, and scouting reports for the pitchers in the draft in, in the 2000 season and spent a lot of time with the scouting and player development people. So once I retired and I, and I had some level of understanding of what they were doing upstairs I my natural instinct was to gravitate toward scouting or, or player development because that was where I came from and and uh, you know I went that time Kelly McGregor the then president of the Rockies developed a program for me where they exposed me to all the different departments in the organization on a daily basis so for for a week or 10 days I might work in marketing for the work day and then at the end of the day go back to baseball ops and uh, I'd go work in ticketing and then go back to baseball ops and what he was doing at the time he told me was he said I am going to give you the a resume that allows you to go run an organization and and uh, at the end of that that process, which is about a season, they they asked me what I preferred, and obviously I opted to, to go in the direction of baseball ops, and and uh, had a great time. They were they were really good people with the Rockies, and Dan O'Dowd, and Josh Burns, and and Michael Hill, and and Paul Herforth, but most specifically Dan O'Dowd and and Kelly McGregor, who carved out a game plan for me, and and they allowed me to build a greater understanding of how each of the the departments in a baseball organization connect. And I think that made me a better communicator and later on in my baseball life a better leader. Looking at the landscape of GMs, you seem to be the exception these days in terms of actually having played in the big leagues. Why do you think more players haven't gone that route? You know, I, th- I guess the easiest answer to that question is the game has changed significantly from a financial perspective. And, you know, I talked about it with some, some former players when I first got into scouting. It is, it, you play a lengthy career. You know, I played for a dozen years, eight in the big leagues. And, and I played during an era where I was fortunate enough that the, the generation before me gave us much greater earning power. Uh, you know, and in the, the generation since, it's, it's gotten even more significant. And you really have to love the game. You really have to enjoy the grind. And you really have to be intellectually curious about how the pieces come together to make it worth your while. You know, these are you know front office jobs, scouting and player development particularly. They are not get rich quick jobs. They are give back jobs. They are give to the game, mentor a player, find satisfaction in watching something come together, much more so than it is you know, about a, a, a career choice to, for the get rich quick. And, and I think that is primarily why most players, when they see what's on the other side, it's hard to go from making X, you know, a lot of zeros, <laughs> Uh, to, to looking at a job where, where as a starter you're going to make forty or fifty thousand dollars and you're going to have to climb through uh, uh, the food chain and and I didn't mind that it, it worked out perfectly well for me I loved the game and I and I wanted to do what I'm doing now and and through the course of, of time I, I think I gravitated more toward the executive roles than I did toward the obviously the the on field 
positions and and it's it's benefited me and now we try over the course of time whether it's guys like Mike Hampton or Scott Service or Rico Bronia or Kevin Jarvis Jeff Cirillo I could name a dozen players that over the course of the last 16 years or so that we have brought along and and given them a, a, an avenue by which to contribute in the game and some of them find it as addicting as playing and they jump after it and and they turn it into careers like all those guys or, or particularly like scott like mike like like jeff have done and and uh it's it to me the more players that stay involved in the game, the better the game will be. But we also have to understand that that's not the end-all be-all. There are a lot of different ways to, to slice the atom. How do you think your playing career benefits you in this job? Uh, I understand the mind of a player a, a little bit more and, and the sensitivities and how things are communicated in the locker room. I do have a little bit of, a, you know, I guess a sympathetic or empathetic approach to, to watching a game, understanding the struggles, that there is a time when you can approach a player in a, in a stand-em-up type way, and there's another time where you need to be a little bit more gentle and, and exercise some TLC. There's a time to crack a whip, and there's a time not to. I've been through, you know, for most of us who played any length of time, and this is a game that is primarily built on failure. You fail, you fail, and it's very difficult over the course of a 162 game, 62 game big league season, to 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 accept the failure. And one of the best things that that I think my playing career provides me is is maybe more of a psychological advantage in talking to a player or in being a more patient evaluator uh, and not thin slicing too much. I'm I'm apt not to to see something high or low and allow it to carry me away. I am much more likely to observe over a length of time, and 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 it seems it seems. I guess juxtaposed to our behavior and how we build a, a roster because we tend to move quickly in our roster judgment. But with, with devaluations of players, particularly at the minor league level, I, I'm, I'm as slow as it gets. I want to watch the player, understand how his mind works, and see how he handles failure and adversity because unless you do that, you're not going to be a successful big league player. Plus, you got to deal with the New York media as a player, so you can handle anything, right? Ah, in theory, yeah, in theory. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's been challenges, for sure. Some videos surfaced this week of you out there taking PFP. Uh, what, what prompted you to get out of the field, considering a comeback we should know about? No, fun. I, I mean, I wasn't very good at it the last time <laughs> I tried, and uh, I joked around with the guys when I put the, the glove on that it's probably the first time I've had on a jock and a cup since the Clinton administration. <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, we we got out there yesterday in a in a fun. We had a coach, our pitching coach Mel Stoudemire Jr., made a comment to one of the the pitchers about a drill we were doing in the morning where we were throwing to targets into the net. And when I say we, I mean our pitching staff. And uh, and Mel, a former pitcher himself, uh, made the comment, "I could do better than that." And the the pitcher challenged him, "No, you couldn't." So it was brought up at one of our uh, coaching uh, morning meetings. Uh, whether the pitching coaches could do better than the, the pitchers themselves. And uh, the pitching coaches were insistent that they could. So all the former Major League pitchers or pitchers on our staff, Mel Stoudemire Jr., former teammate of mine, Pete Harnish, Mike Hampton, uh, Lance Painter, they, they, they rallied them all. And Scott Service came up and said to me, I think it would be funny you know, to, to see you do this. And just go out and let the guys have fun, poke fun at you. And uh, there's, there's something disarming about the idea of the general manager being human. And uh, I think I, I proved that not only am I a poor athlete, but I'm very human. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and it was fun. I, I enjoy throwing. I still like to put a glove on. I, I, my son is now 20 and off pitching in college, and, and it's been a while since I was able to just have a catch. So I, I enjoyed it. I, I will tell you, when I woke up this morning, just a small little you know, aches and pains. I'm not excited to go do it again. <laughs> I'll, I'll stick with the, you know, the elliptical machine and, and the, the simple lightweight room. Right. You were a scout for the Red Sox when they broke the curse in 2004. What was it like being a part of that ride? You know, it's probably in, in a greenhouse type effect as much as I've learned in baseball outside of my time on the playing field was, you know, from, from when I joined the Red Sox and, and spent the, the couple of years there with them in 03 and 04, it was Theo's first year as a general manager. And we had such a talented group. I, I think in, in whether it be interns or office assistants or, or you know, departmental leaders, 
Theo Epstein and Josh Burns and Jed Hoyer and Peter Woodfork and Ben Charrington and Craig Chipley. It was just a, it was a who's who of, of what would eventually be baseball front offices across the landscape over the, the, the 10 years to follow. And it was it was so educational to be a part of that group, to have Bill James on staff to kind of guide us in a direction that most organizations wouldn't have gone at that time. I learned so much about understanding how to marry metrics with what we saw with our eyes, and it really formed my scouting view. And and now I, I say to our players all the time, uh, uh, I guess a method that I, that I learned then is uh, in evaluating players and in going through scouting and in what we do in player development and even in how we see the game. We have to take what we see and couple it with what we know. And And at the time that I joined the Red Sox, I didn't quite understand what I knew. I knew what I saw, but I didn't understand what I knew. And now I, after that, those two seasons, I understood it better. And when I went on to, to run scouting groups and, and oversee various departments, I never forgot the lessons I learned in that Red Sox greenhouse. After joining Josh Burns of the Diamondbacks as director of scouting and player personnel, you were later named the interim, interim GM when Josh was fired. Was there any disappointment that you didn't get the full-time job? Uh, sure. I guess my, my major disappointment would be in the fact that that front office got busted up. Uh, you know, Josh, uh, Josh and I were together from the Rockies to the Red Sox through the Diamondbacks. I think a lot of his baseball acumen. And there was a reason why I went with him on two different occasions. And it's always difficult when you're with a group that gets busted up. And and that one, I won't say it was it was internationally as famous as the Red Sox group. But when you know you had guys in that front office like the now general manager, or general manager of the Mariners. So you had the manager of the Houston Astros. A.J. Hinch was our farm director. Peter Woodfork's now a VP at, at Major League Baseball. Shiraz Raymond is now the assistant general manager of the Cubs. And we had a really talented group there with the Diamondbacks that went on to do really good things. And, and you know, Mike Rizzo, uh, who's now the general manager of the Nationals. And, and over the course of time that the group got broken up, I, don't, I would be lying to you if I told you I was super excited when the group got broken up, but you, I, I, I feel very proud of the fact that we were able to stabilize the organization in the summer of 2010, make the appropriate moves to get them back on track. And I was disappointed when I didn't get the job, but, uh, but I wasn't so disappointed that I left the organization. I had the opportunity to work with Kevin Towers in 2011. KT taught me quite a bit. And it was a different type of education. And I think some of what I learned coming through the Rockies and Red Sox chains, le learning uh, along the way through those first five years with the Diamondbacks, I then learned, I, I then learned how not to get so invested in your mistakes. And, and that was KT's greatest lesson to me is, is when you see something isn't working, when you see a player sinking, when you see the, the, the draft pick or the trade that just isn't going right, don't compound the error, solve the problem. Whether that be whether that be send the player back to the minor leagues and let him breathe a little bit, whether that mean go find another alternative. You know, it, it, it could be any number of things, but uh, KT taught me that the, the, the job won't allow you to sit and watch the player sink and you will lose the player. You have to do the right thing for the human on the other end of things. And, and that was the, K, KT was human. And, and uh, I think like humans, we make, we make good decisions and bad, but he taught me how not to compound it by watching it fail. You mentioned some of those moves you made during that time as the interim GM, uh, Derek Hall, said you, quote, stock the pond for the organization. How valuable was that experience as interim GM in terms of just experiencing that role for the first time? Uh, it was it was really it was a rush. We, we I, I believe it was July 1st or 2nd when I was named the interim GM and we were right in the middle of what was a, a, a bad season. That's how front offices get blown up. And we were in the middle of a bad season and we were headed into July with a lot of veteran players that were appealing to contenders and and we were able to put together uh, deals that have been very different from the deals that I've have done since or, or for the most part since. And we were able to go acquire young players with long-term value to the franchise, guys like uh, Daniel Hudson and Patrick Corbin and Tyler Skaggs. And, and through the course of that time, I think we had really productive drafts. Paul Goldschmidt, A.J. Pollock, Christopher Owings. It, it, was a, 
it was a host of Trevor Bauer, who was then later traded. There, there was a host of really productive drafts and trades that did stock the system with, with high-end talent that I think has really crested in Arizona over the course of time. Unfortunately, that some of them fail. That's just the nature of the business. Some of them were traded off. And, uh, but we were very proud of what we put together in terms of a young, controllable, and sustainable group. And, uh, and that resulted in a really good 2011 season, you know, a 94-win season with a lot of young contributors that we had acquired via trade and, and, and draft, guys like Ian Kennedy and Dan Hudson, both of them, I think one won 21 games, the other one 16, and between them they threw about 450 innings. And, and we, had, we had young starters coming on the back end. We had a, a star-studded minor league system that I think the previous year was ranked 28th by the third-party sources. And, and at the end of that year they were ranked first or second and you know I, I think that's how you do it and and John Hart who was a general manager of mine as a player in Cleveland and who gave me a lot of good advice along the way in, in my executive life when I took that job he said you know how this is done you watched it happen he said stock up on the young pitching and that's exactly the the model we followed and and just continued to drill for more pitching as we as we went but uh, I'm, I'm glad that it worked out that the Diamondbacks got the controllable assets. I, I hope it works long term for them. You know, it's been six years since, and I still follow every one of those players like they're your own kids. You recently said that past mistakes in the draft specifically still gnaw at you. You cited the decision to pass on Chris Sale when talking about this. Is it similar to how poker players rarely remember their big wins, but they can tell you every detail about every bad beat? Every loss. I, I can I can very rarely tell you about the the strikeout where I was walking off the mound thinking that ah, I felt really good right there, but I can always tell you about the bomb I gave up at an inopportune time. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, and I still, even as I say that, I see, I see homers flying, but you know, in, in the draft, it's never easier to, to see your mistakes. And, and I say this to scouts every year when we start the draft, and this is, this is my message to them to not be so proud and to not get hung up on one idea, but to see a broader picture is that we've been doing the draft every year since 1965. I have I have been alive and and either a player or an executive in in Major League Baseball for now close to thirty of those drafts and. I can't remember if there's more than four or five times that we got it right. And when I say we got it right, the first player, just the first guy. It's a really difficult thing. And, and I guess that's my way of disarming the scout and telling him, I know you're not going to be perfect. I know you're not going to make the right decision every time. And what we're doing is trying to take a 10,000-foot view of building a, a, an organization. We want to look overhead to realize that if you're going to take risk in the first round, then back it up with some degree of, of certainty or, or, I guess, more probability in, in rounds two or four. Build some diversity in a portfolio like you would as an investor. You, know, you want to have your, your penny stock, you want to have your, your startup, and you want to have your, your blue chippers that you know you can count on. And, and whether it be via international draft or, or trade markets, build some, I don't know where the bell curve lies, but build some, some certainty in what you're doing. And it is so easy to look back and think of the guys that you passed on. It's not easy when it's an Albert Pujols, you know? I, I say there are 23 GMs yeah. in college stand, but I'm thinking about passing on Mike Trout. And I, I would say that's true, other than the fact that at the time they passed on him for a reason, right. you know? And, and, and God bless Mike Trout and great for the Angels that somebody picked him at, at, at a time where they now look back on it and think, how could that possibly have happened? And, uh, you know, I think about it in terms of the Mariners. You know, in that same draft, Dustin, Ack Dustin Ackley is one of the finest college hitters you will ever see and, and had a productive career, produced eight or nine wins above replacement, which is not – that's not a failure. That, by standards of a first-round draft, is a pretty good return. Unfortunately, it, it happened at the same time that Steven Strasburg and Mike Trout and it, it was a really productive draft. You're going to find more of the great players of all time having gone in, in a uniquely late positions in the draft than you will finding them go number one. You know, hey, Michael Jordan wasn't the number one pick in the draft. That's right. right. It's a very inexacting gray science. So, I, and I'll poke, I'll poke fun at myself all the time for my own mistakes as a way of disarming the staff and my, just telling them, guys, as long as we have a good process, we will make good decisions, and not every draft is going to be a home run. But we always want to make sure that we have a chance to single to right. When you got the Angels GM job, Artie Moreno pointed to your knowledge of analytics as one of the primary reasons that you were hired. 
most players don't pay attention to that stuff when you were playing it wasn't even really well known when did you first really start an interest in, in all these advanced metrics as a kid there's a, as a kid and it was probably in 1980 uh, I, I, I remember it actually pretty clearly I had the it was the first time my dad brought home the big volume of the baseball encyclopedia you know, he had he was at a function for Barnes and Noble and in, uh, in Manhattan, and he came home and he brought me the baseball encyclopedia. You know, and then at the next function, he brought me home what was then known as the Bill James Abstract, and it was the first one I could remember seeing. I think it was right around there when I was in the in, in early high school, uh, late grade school, and, and I started reading it. I, at at that time, I was a, a crazy baseball card collector, real fan of the game, reading every. You know, Dell baseball biography I could find on the uh, on a, any player, and I watched. I was a j baseball junkie watching the Mets, the Yankees, the the Phillies, whoever was on at a given moment, and and you gravitate toward players. And then as a high schooler, I joined Saber, and, and I was a I, actually we will joke about it now with the people who run Saber. I, w I was the only active Major League Baseball player they've ever had on record as also being an active member of Saber. Wow. Uh, in the in the 1990s, and as a result, I would go speak at their at their conferences, or or I would host. I actually emceed two of their events in Denver, uh, toward the tail end of my career, and and I just got a kick out of it, comparing past players to future, and, and uh, or present players, and and being able to discern some value in a player by what he was doing statistically, and you see markers, you know, I, instinctively I knew I walked too many guys, and and it it was not shocking to me to find out that the walk. Rate usually correlated with the earned run rate, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and it's just basic stuff. And and then, like I said, when I had the opportunity to start working with with the Red Sox and really grow in a greenhouse with people who are much smarter than me, and and hopefully glean something from from their knowledge, I, and and don't be too proud. I think even when I started with that group, you know, I, I was I was older than most of the guys in that room, but but younger in my experiences in terms of understanding how the sabermetric movement was moved. And that was a, at the very early stages when, you know, we're still pre-Moneyball at that time right. and, and, uh, and starting to, but, but now it's, it's a very college-oriented draft. It's a very, there, there were fundamentals, you know, it's all about on-base percentage. It's all about college over high school. Over time, I realized it's, it's something uh, of that, and there's so much more that has developed since. And, and you know, it, in the time since, really technology has changed the way we view uh, sabermetrics. It's, it's no longer about simple stats. It, it's now about simple stats combined with the, the technological magic of the world we live in, where we can tell you within centimeters from a satellite that hovers above Earth where a player started and where he finished. That's awesome. And if you're not interested in that, I don't know. I, you, I'm curious. I want to know how it works and if that can help me make a better decision on putting together a baseball team, I'd be stupid not to listen. Do you think StatCast has changed the way fans look at the game? It, if it hasn't, it will. Uh, and, and I don't think we've really even scratched the surface for what StatCast is capable of. Uh, StatCast, even in the last two years, has changed the way you know, I or we look at building a major league roster. And, and I don't think that's going to go away. I think it's only going to enhance the way we watch it. I think, I think StatCast is going to enhance the way we watch game on TV, you know, just the viewing pleasure. Now, much like a, an NFL game on Sunday or like we've seen in the postseason where we can see, you know, pitch tracker, not pitch tracker that shows you velocity, but pitch tracker that's showing you horizontal and vertical break on a pitch. Pitch tracker that's showing you six pitches in a sequence, leave a pitcher's hand and go in different directions. I find that wildly interesting. How can you hit it? And I guess I proved over a brief sample size in the big leagues that it's really hard to hit it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the, just the, the visuals that they're able to create on TV with the ground coverage in the outfield. Now you watch a, an MLB network cover at the end of the game when they're doing their, their game replays, and they, they'll show you three different routes or angles that, that an outfielder took to a ball and, and really how, how significant it was that the player was able to get there or not get there. Uh, it's, it's, it's magical stuff. I think we've only scratched the surface. We have now hired multiple people who their job is to sift through all the StatCast data because it is mountains of information that we're still trying to fully understand.
If you're enjoying this Mark Feinstein interview, make sure you check out all the great conversations featured in the MLB.com Newsmakers podcast. You'll hear Mark and other MLB.com reporters chat with baseball's brightest stars of today and the past, as well as the game's best broadcasters and writers. You can download MLB.com Newsmakers today on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts by searching Newsmakers. Now, back to Mark Feinsand. A lot's been written about your, with your time in Anaheim. Mike Social was not a huge fan of analytics. Obviously, you were. How difficult was it to have that divide between the general manager and the manager? Uh, you know, it's a, it, obviously it's not ideal. And when you're building any any company, any business, any process, you would like everybody to understand or, or invest in that process. And, the, and it has to be some give and take. And, you know, I, I think much is made of the fact that my years with the Angels were the, the, the Hatfields and the McCoys, where we were on opposite. That wasn't always true. You know, there were, there were many days or, or, or long stretches where we all were, were on the same page and behaving in, in the same manner. Uh, process-wise, but what it did do is—is is it did—and and this is a life in baseball. It did uh, enhance my desire to, when I got this opportunity in Seattle, uh, create create a group that understood what we were trying to get to. And each guy brings with them a little different angle. You know, we've got a group downstairs of you know former players that that are running our our clubhouse who have also been exposed. Whether it's Scott Service having been you know with me for the last quite a few times over the course of the last 20 years. Whether it's Maniac that haven't been exposed to what I think is a brilliant group who run the Cleveland Indians for a number of years. Whether it's whether it's Mel Stottlemyre who spent a decade and a half in the Diamondbacks organization, six or seven of those years with Josh Burns, with me, with A.J. Hinch. You know, watching those, the different people down there who, you know, they may not be able to, to dive into the StatCast information and pull it out, but they understand the process we're trying to employ, and they understand how to, to allow our advanced scout, Emmanuel Safuentes, to make a difference that day. They understand how our, our analytics group can go find the one guy who can backspin a fastball and really make a curveball spin that might be able to make our bullpen a little bit different. And, and they, have, they are tolerant of the, of, of, of the organization's function with all of those people contributing to our success. And, and that has been my favorite part of the transition to this job is that right now I feel like we are in a good place organizationally. And, and it comes from being on the same page from step one with our major league staff. When you got to Anaheim, Mike Trout had just finished his rookie season. What was it like watching him play every day? Uh, actually, my first year in Anaheim was his rookie oh, season. Oh, was it? Oh, yeah. It was off and, my uh, year then. Okay. Yeah, and it was fabulous is the <laughs> best way to put it. He's the best player in baseball, and, uh, and, and he's one of the best players I've ever seen. And, it, and, and just as good as he is as a player, he is that good as a worker, as a teammate, as a person. He was raised the right way. He's got a great family. And, uh, South Jersey thing. Yeah. He's, yeah I mean, that's, <laughs> it's where they come from. That's where they come from. And, uh, you know, he's, he's obviously he's carved out a niche as, as – as, if not, if not widely regarded as the best player in the game today, one of the best players I've seen in my, in my lifetime. You signed him to a $144.5 million contract before 2014, despite the fact that he wasn't even arbitration eligible yet. Given the deals that have been signed since then, I think his deal actually got announced on the same day as Miguel Cabrera's $292 million deal. And the numbers that are already being thrown around for that 2018 free agent class with guys like Bryce Harper and Manny Machado, does Trout's contract seem like a bargain now? Uh, I think, oddly enough, we felt like it was a bargain then, and, uh, and it was a it was a big number. And you know, I thought the you know Artie Moreno, the Angels organization, they allowed us to be aggressive with with a player with with lower service. You know, typically the 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 extensions done with players in his service class were probably more a third of that size. But he's an exceptional player, and and you were talking about a different element. And to, if you want to buy free agent years of, of the best player in the game, who when we signed him to that contract, he already finished in the top two in the MVP on multiple occasions. It was it was made 
abundantly clear that he was one of the best players in the game. And he changed our world. You know, it, it really did change our world. It made the offense so much more dynamic. It made the defense so much more blanket-like in his coverage. He changed our world on the bases. He affected the game in so many ways, wildly popular with the fan base. It was kind of a no-brainer. And we were thankful after we got it done that, that, uh, that he was interested in staying with the Angels and playing in Southern California. It's a he's a he's a terrific player, and if you look back at that deal, you know, at, even now sitting back looking back on it, you go, wow, it really that that's working for everybody, and it's it's a heck of a lot easier to sign deals that work for everybody when you're signing great players at young ages before. Then in theory, and odd as it is, I mean, it would be it would be so far out of the norm in the history of baseball. He may not have had his best years yet, <laughs> and his, right. and his career has already, you know, I basically emulated those of the greatest players in history, and then he's not even to what the normal prime years of a player would be. That's fascinating. He's still two or three years away. From yeah, that. it's, it's crazy. Scary. You resigned at Anaheim in July of 2015. You rejoined the Red Sox a month later in an advisory role. Were you confident at that time that another GM job? Would present itself at some point? Uh, not really, yeah, not really. And you, you know, sometimes these you, you get one bite at the apple. I feel very fortunate to have gotten another. Uh, you know, thank you to the, to the Mariners for allowing it to happen. But you know, that that move, I, I you know, for me, it was a it was a difficult time. It was a difficult decision, and and mostly about the people. But you know, thankfully for me, the Red Sox with Ben Charrington, with with what I think is is one of the premier ownership groups in all of sports. You know. John Henry and Tom Werner do Tom Werner do a great job, and and they they had established something in Boston, and I felt like when I talked to Ben that among the the number of teams that had called me and asked me to do similar things in the in the immediate now, uh, that was a place I felt like I could really help, and it was a lot of people that I was familiar with, and and uh, and a great organization, and they had a ton of minor league talent, and I, and and I'm looking at the pool thinking if nothing else I can learn here. And and I did. I, I, in a brief period of time, I learned, and it was kind of a shocking turn of events when, you know, shortly after I got there, you know, Ben turned into to Dave, and, and and all of a sudden he was gone. But uh, I'm, I'm very thankful for that time. I, I learned a lot, and I got a sneak peek at a wildly talented organization. But most importantly, it was about people and process, and their systems, the Red Sox systems, are are about as good in in terms of how they do baseball about as good or better than any other team in the league. The, the resources they pour into it, the intelligence level of the organization that, that employs it, I think they do it as good as anybody. The core of your team here in Seattle, built around Felix Hernandez, Robinson Cano, Nelson Cruz, Kyle Singer, players that you've said put you in a win-now mode. Does their age cause you to look at the next few years as your best window to win? Sure. I, it, it'd be lying if I told you otherwise. They're, they are having... They're having their premium years. You're still getting. Last year was arguably the best year in the history of Robinson Cano, and uh, he's, he's getting better it's with age. Impressive history too. It really is. You know, the last three, four years have been the best string of years in the career of Nelson Cruz. Kyle Seeger gets progressively better every year that he plays. You know, Kyle's still in his 20s. The other two guys seem to be aging backwards. And, you know, and, and you're looking, the, the primary starting pitchers entering last year for us were Felix Hernandez and Asashi Wakuma, who were 30 and 35, uh, respectively. So you have to be conscious of where your core is. And you don't get those players to, to hover. You know, you're trying to figure out how to enhance that group. But the challenge to us was how do you enhance that group with a, a payroll, a reasonable payroll model from which to work when that group is already accounted for a good deal of it and then to build something that we think is more sustainable so we're not just on a hayride to hell waiting to crash into a wall. And, you know, it took two years, but we feel more comfortable with the, I guess, the flexibility of the organization right now. We feel like we've enhanced our player development system. We've improved our pool of talent overall. And, and we've added a lot of guys who are still in the prime years of their careers, guys like Smiley and Segura, Danny Valencia, Gerard Dyson come to mind. And, and we've done it while adding younger players, guys like Mitch Haniger and Dan Vogelbach and, and Segura, who's going to play this year at 27, and Drew Smiley, who will pitch at 27. And we've seen advances by guys like James Paxton and Mike Zanino. So we feel like that we are not in a, in a win now and, and punt the next decade mode. 
we're we're in a situation where we still have you know guys that are between the ages of 23 and 27 that form the, the core of our team around the core of our team and give us a chance to sustain if we are wise in how we draft, how we sign internationally, and how we augment with free agency moving forward. 16 years since the Mariners were last in the postseason. Seattle's seen the Seahawks reach the playoffs 11 times during that stretch, played three Super Bowls, win one Super Bowl. How important is it for the Mariners to get back to the postseason? Uh, it, it's definitely important. We've been we've been gone for too long. We talk about it frequently with the group down there. We can only control the controllables, but this is our time. We have some of the greatest players in the game. Uh, we have a core that the middle of our lineup should stand up to just about any. I think the additions of guys like Dyson and Segura should put the top of our lineup in a position where it can stand up to just about any. The, the experiences and the track records with our five starters give us something to look forward to, and we've built some depth in back of it. As, as you're probably watching now in the WBC, our young closer is about as exciting as anybody's. Uh, we've built a, a group in the bullpen that we think is versatile and sustainable. We're better defensively. We're, we're faster. We're more athletic. Anything can go wrong in a given moment. Not every player we acquired is going to hit on, on the return and uh, in, in the, the ROI, so to speak. Some of them are going to exceed our expectations and some of them are going to fall short. But the, the power of the, the, the pack, I guess, is with the wolf and vice versa. So we're going to find a way to make sure that the group isn't just 25, that it's 45 and 55 players that can come together and, and contribute at the right time. But understanding is that that core group of 10 or 12 guys Guys that sit at the epicenter of the of the action, they're the guys that that we rely on every day, and that is a championship group. And now it's our goal or our job to put together a, 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 a group of players around them that can make it easier for them to do their job. Robinson Cano was an all-star player in New York, but he wasn't called upon to lead, given some of the other names that were in his clubhouse with Derek Jeter, Alex Rodriguez, etc. How has he blossomed as a leader in Seattle? Marvelously. Uh, Robinson Cano, coming in here, I didn't know Robbie at all. I had never, I'd never met him. I'd never been associated with, with him or a team he was on. I had always admired the, the ease with which he played the game. And, you know, coming in here, I'd always heard, ah, he's not really a leader. He's a great player. He wasn't wired to lead. We saw something quite the opposite. And, and it really flowered for him last year in spring training. I think he had an immediate connection with Scott Service in the clubhouse last spring. And leaving spring, Scott really, I, I think, did a wonderful job with Robbie, with Nelson Cruz, with Felix, with Seeger, propping them up and putting them in a position to lead. And, you know, it's amazing what will happen when, when you get out of players' way and just let them do what players do. And, and Robbie was magnificent, particularly with our younger Latino players, uh, guys like we're watching right now with Gene Segura. We saw it last year with Cattell Marte. He's been a wonderful influence on Leonis Martin. His, his ability to prepare, he says a lot without saying a lot, if that makes any sense. And, you know, the combination, he and Nelson Cruz have a terrific relationship, They're almost a brotherly type of relationship. And they play off each other so, so well. And both are terrific people. Both are invested in their, the, the teammates around them. And the way he's led, and in particular, the way he's taught his young teammates or younger teammates how to prepare how to be ready to do your job night after night. And you know, I imagine that's something he did pick up in the Yankee clubhouse back in the day. I mean, they were great teams that were very well prepared. The apple did not fall far from the tree. And I think last year was his chance to spread his wings with a new administration, with a new manager, with, uh, he was the veteran in the group that could say, all right, I'm gonna help now. And, and he stepped up and he did, and we're very thankful for it. Your stated goal going into the off season was to improve team speed and defense. Be satisfied with the improvements you made in those areas? Yeah, really thrilled with the, the the results so far in the spring. Like I said, with you know, we didn't we played most of the spring without Gene Segura, who was with the Team Dominican and the WBC. But you know, Segura and Dyson at the top of our lineup, Leonis Martin at the bottom. Some combination of nine, one, and two. Will those guys will uh, handle an average year for those three guys is something in the neighborhood of 100 stolen bases. 
more importantly, they make an impact going first to third, scoring from first on a ball in the gap, almost like clockwork. And we've seen it play out here in spring training nonstop. We are, we are much more efficient in how we're running the bases, up to and including just this week, we've watched guys uh, taking third base on a dirt ball read that otherwise hadn't done it. And, you know, veteran players who weren't great at it. We've really focused on the base running. I think we've been the most efficient base stealing team in the spring this year, which that was the goal. You know, it's not just run until you, somebody throws you out, it's run wisely. And, and so far we've been doing that. We feel like we have the element of speed. We feel like there's more speed that we haven't tapped into. You know, Mitch Hanniger is an excellent base runner who's an above average runner and should be able to contribute in that regard. Taylor Motter is, is a, an above average runner who's also a good base runner. And if we give these guys some freedom to move, we feel like our, the combination of our ballpark and our division and our style of play, understanding that Cano and Cruz and Seeger will be at the center of that lineup. If we can create a little bit of chaos on the bases around them and consistently put players in position to score, they will. And and we've seen it I, twice this, this spring, we've actually scored from first on a single, which is, you know, the old Enos Slaughter play. Right. Uh, we've seen it happen twice this spring, and, and it's been fun to watch that when, when, when that happens. And the first time it happened was with Gerard Dyson, and we thought, ah, it was bound to happen sooner sure. or later, but it's also happened with Gene Segura. And when you have multiple players that can affect the game with their speed, you know, the old adage that it doesn't take a day off, hopefully it stands up for us this year. If my count is correct, and maybe you've made a trade since I checked my computer this morning, you made 39 trades since you took over. Oh, you're like, here yeah. Here in 2015, <laughs> 14 this offseason alone. Uh, there's only eight players remaining on your 40-man roster from when you took over 18 months ago. Why do you think you've been able to pull off more deals than anybody else and do you ever turn off your phone uh no i never turn off the phone i, I think now we are i think we're at 41 or 42 trades okay in, in total and and I, I suppose it's jedi mind tricks we're just we're, we're talking the other team into the <laughs> uh, uh no for the most part and i and i've said this publicly before and i and i've said it privately i say it frequently the our we know who the core of our team is. We're running out 150 plus million dollar payroll. We're not a cheap team. You know, we are among the 10 highest payrolls in baseball. We have core players like Cano, like Seager, like Cruz, like Hernandez, who who are paid accordingly for what they provide. And uh, and, and this is this is a team that needed to be augmented in in the periphery, and around the periphery. And the easiest way to do that is to target trades. The, to target a trade allows us the ability to fit a puzzle piece perfectly rather than taking the best available free agent who might fit your, your payroll dynamic and plug them in and just hope it fits. So, you know, last year, not wanting to blow up a minor league system before we were truly able to evaluate who they were, and I'm more prone to taking some time with that than others. We took a year and we assessed what we had in the minors. We traded some from the low minors to augment our, our 2016 roster. And we went out and we got a lot of one-year fits. That the guys that were in their 30s that we knew were creating a bridge to get to a roster that was deeper. Guys like Adam Lind and Chris Iannetta and Deho Lee and Nori Aoki and Seth Smith and Franklin Gutierrez. And, and, and it worked for us. We had a very enjoyable year. I think we were a fun team to watch. And over the course of that time, we were able to dial in to targets that fit us better, and we were able to better evaluate the players that we ultimately, ultimately traded to get to those players. But it, our preference for the trade market as opposed to the free agency was because we could identify that type of player and frankly, the stated goal to be more athletic, to, to be more energetic on the bases, to be better defensively, those are not, those are not typically the, the types of players you will find in numbers in free agency. There might be two or four of those in a given year. Uh, we were able to go out and access a number of players like that, not just the household names, but guys like Dyson, Ben Gamble, Guillermo Heredia, who he signed as a uh, major league free agent out of Cuba, uh, Boog Powell, who he acquired last year, Leonis Martin, Mitch Hanniger, Gene Segura, you know, athletic players in their mid-20s, they're not really available in free agency. We had to access them via trade, and, and we gave up something to get them. So, you know, we were willing to, to rob Peter to pay Paul, so to speak, and, and transition our roster into something we thought would work better to us via the trade. You've made a number of trades both here and in Anaheim with the Rays. Uh, is that a coincidence, or do you think some 
GMs just have a better rapport with some GMs when it comes to talking about deals? Uh, the latter, you know, I, I think you do. You have you have teams that you're you're very comfortable dealing with. I, I like Eric Neander, uh, Andrew Friedman before him. Uh, as a result of the move to the Dodgers, I've, now we also deal very frequently with the Dodgers. They're, we we see players through a similar lens but not an identical lens. Therefore, we're able to line up on deals a little bit more readily than other teams. It also so happens that our needs are their strengths and our strengths are their needs. So, so we're able to, to, to do the back and forth. And, and among the creative groups in the league, and there are a handful of teams that I would cite as being really creative, the Rays have historically been one of the most creative, if not at the top of the food chain. So doing the minor league player for player deals, or we've done a couple of volume trades with the Rays where it's been, you know, these three minor leaguers for these two minor leaguers, five and six player deals with a lot of guys who really haven't had a great deal of major league experience, if any at all. And and uh, what we're doing in both cases is we're resituating our depth and and effectively has scored us players like Boog Powell and Taylor Motter and guys that we really feel like fit our current needs. And, you know, and, and uh, similarly with the, the, and I could go on and on, Drew Smiley, I don't want to say he was surplus for the Rays, but when you've got 10 starting pitchers that could conceivably go pitch in an all-star game, and I just called him and I said, hey, can you spare one? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and, and we were able to line up with them, you know, pretty readily. And, and I think one of the reasons I have heard a couple of, of I, I guess, GMs around the league that I talk to frequently, we we would generally be cited as being quick to do a deal, and uh, and the the faster you can get something done, the more likely you are to, to to reach your target, as opposed to sitting on the sideline trying to negotiate down and watching somebody else acquire your target. How do you feel about the state of your rotation right now behind Felix? Uh, really happy with it. Uh, couldn't be happier with how James Paxton is throwing. I think this spring, Drew Smiley has been a revelation for us. Uh, we have seen we have seen incredible improvement in terms of his current velocity, uh, and the the consistency with his breaking ball is well ahead of where it was truly at any time last year. And he'll tell you that. Last year, by his own admission, he didn't have great feel or consistency with his secondary pitches, and and many days he turned into a fastball only guy. Uh, so far this spring, really from the word go, he has been dialed in. His secondary stuff has been sharp. His curveball has been at times dynamic. And for a guy who I think over the course of his career averaged about 90.6 with his fastball, last year I think it was 90.3, we've seen in spring training an uptick to the tune of plus two miles an hour, which is a you know a pretty significant jump. We've seen him hit 95 miles an hour in the in the spring, and I know he was up to 94 when he was away with the WBC, and uh, that has been a notable uh, increase in velocity. And you know right now Drew looks healthy. He's coming off a season in which he made his starts and had a career high in innings, and we feel like we're just getting into the best years of Drew Smiley. Uh, we feel like the the Hisashi Akuma. Kuma is is like the steady golf pro who's going to go out and play par golf every night. And he gives you a chance to win the game, and his teammates trust him, and he can slow it down when you need to. James Paxton has every ability to elevate whatever you want to dream James to be. He can be that. It's dynamic stuff. He's really matured as both a pitcher and a person over the last year or so. He's a hard worker. His body's in great shape. And you know, it's, it's not bad to have a lefty with four pitches who throws downhill and can hit 100. That's okay. <laughs> Sign me up. You yeah. take that. You know, and, and Giovanni Gallardo has been encouraging in camp. He's following the glove. He's commanding his fastball, which was a primary focus for him coming into camp. He has reintroduced himself to elevating at the right times. His velocity has seen an uptick. He's been averaging about 91. He's touched 93 in most of his outings. His curveball is becoming sharper with each outing. I think for the most part, he struggled in his first outing against Kansas City in the spring. And since, he's pitched relatively well. And and we feel like Giovanni, is, he's a pro. When, when the bell rings, he's going to figure out how to get us a, an opportunity to win. And maybe most encouragingly, this year as opposed to last, we have a group of five starters at AAA who have all started major league games and are all still in their 20s. So we have a group in back of our five who can fill in for that one day or emergency start. And then we have a trio of 23-year-olds and Chase DeYoung, who we just acquired from the Dodgers in a trade, uh, Andrew Moore and Max Posey, who we acquired over the offseason from the Braves. 
who two of the three, and Posey and Moore, you could have argued were our best pitchers in the spring. Posey was a, a, up to 96 miles an hour downhill, gets him to hit it on the ground, didn't give up a run in big league camp. Moore was a second rounder for us a year and a half ago who's really quickly come through our system, our pitcher of the year. And Chase DeYoung was the Texas League's pitcher of the year last year. They're all age appropriate and they're lined up to become the next core that ascends. And, you know, with the exception of Kuma, uh, who's going to pitch this year at 36, the rest of the group is all, they're all 27 to 31 years old. They're right in the hot spot of their careers. They're all experienced starters. Three of the five have pitched in all-star games. Three of the five have generated Cy Young votes. And we feel like the, the, the two guys that haven't may have the potential to rise up and, and outperform the rest. Last question for you. What's your current assessment of the state of the American League West? Really good division. And, you know, the American League West, I said this at a, at a uh, banquet during the banquet circuit in the offseason. If you can figure out who is going to win the, the American League West with any degree of certainty, let me know. Because I, I've been in the division for a while, and I've, I, it, I can't remember the last time the, the preseason favorite actually won the division. Maybe this will be that year. Uh, I hope not. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's, a, it's a very competitive division. Obviously, in this division, the Rangers rule the roost. They've, for most of the last decade, they've, they, they've done it year in and year out. Uh, when they don't do it, it's generally due to, to injury. I think they do a great job of creating a culture. They've got a very talented team. They've done a nice job of blending some younger players in with the Beltres and the, the Hamels and et cetera. Uh, they, until future notice, are, are the team to beat. The Houston Astros are as talented as any team in baseball. Uh, the, the depth of their 40-man roster, the talent of their core players, the Altuves, the Correas, they're awesome. Uh, they are going to be a force to deal with for many years, not just 2017. I hope it doesn't start until a little later, but uh, they're, they're some kind of fun to watch. The Angels have the best player in the world, and, and on any given day, they have the best defense that you'll see. They, they really can button it up and, and make the plays, and, and uh, like most teams in our division, they – the, the Mariners, the Rangers will go as far as our pitching takes us. And the Oakland A's, if, if 2012 and 2013, I know when I was with the Angels, we were proclaimed the, the world champs before the season started, uh, which wound up to be a little premature. And, and if you didn't learn a little bit about the Oakland A's and Billy and Dave Forrest and what they're able to put on the field and, and the resiliency of that organization, not necessarily of the 25 players on their roster year to year, but of that organization, somehow they find a way to make themselves relevant in years where you don't think they will and the year that you think you can project the Oakland A's as a 70-win team, they'll win 90. They, they always find a way. So I think it's a, it's a very competitive division. I don't think anyone's going to run away from this division and win it by 10 games, uh, despite what the projection systems might say. And I don't think the other teams believe they're going to run away either because it, it'll be hotly contested. There's a lot of talent in the West. Appreciate the time, Jerry. Good luck this season. You got it, Mark. Pleasure.